Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Hulse, publisher at Morania Press, and Professor Garen Roberts, consider popular publications Chameleon, Dime Mystery Magazine. The talk was recorded on Thursday, August 4, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So uh, I want to start off with, with some good news and some bad news. The good news is um, I spent between two and three hours pulling terrific issues of Dime Mystery from my collection and scanning the covers by such great artists as uh, Tom Lovell, Walter Baumhofer, um, and John Newton Howitt. The bad news is I left my thumb drive at home, so we're not going to have any of this. However, I am confident that Garen and I, being the scintillating speakers that we are, will keep you so riveted with our history of this magazine that you won't miss the images. So, as uh, Mr. Killjoy, who introduced us, mentioned, uh, Dime Mystery Magazine started in late 1932. Popular publications, of course, got started in 1930, and among the first four titles that they uh, released was a detective book called Detective Action Stories. This was followed at the end of 1931 by Dime Detective, which was a big hit right from the get-go. So with a couple of, of prominent detective titles uh, already to their credit, Popular's President Harry Steger said, um, you know, we really ought to add another one. So they added what they did call Dime Mystery Book Magazine. And those early covers were done in the form of a, they, they were illustrated in the form of a book cover. So there would be a book cover painted, cocked slightly so you could see the spine on which they would have the title of the cover story. And the idea was you were getting a complete 60,000 word novel for a single dime as opposed to $2, which was the average cost of hardcover mystery novels. Um, the way we're going to do this is when Mike asked Aaron and I to do this presentation, I'm not even sure he knew that we had complementary strengths when it comes to dime mystery because I've done most of my reading and research about the issues from the 30s. He's done most of his reading and research uh, about the issues from the 40s. And you'll be surprised about some of the authors who were working for this magazine in the 40s. Garen will get into that. So I'm going to talk first about the 30s, then we're going to segue to Garen for the 40s, and if we have enough time at the end, we'll take some questions. So, Dime Mystery Book, the first novel, which I changed the title of, of course, was actually a reprint of a double-day crime club hardcover that had been published the previous year as Ask No Questions. So they changed the title, they reprinted that, and they reprinted several other hardcover novels. They reprinted a couple of other um, uh, Doubleday Crime Club books. They reprinted a novel from Knopf. And they also solicited original book-length novels from freelance writers. To back up each 60,000-word novel, uh, Steger had recently purchased reprint rights to a bunch of short stories by the late British thriller writer Edgar Wallace, who passed away in Hollywood in early 1932, while working on the script for what would become King Kong. So they figured, okay, this is good. We've got Wallace short stories. He's one of the biggest names in the business. They also had some fact articles by a guy named Leslie T. White, who later wrote fiction 
for magazines like Dime Detective and uh, various other freelance stories that they, that they had, possibly that had been submitted to either Detective Action Stories or Dime Detective. What they chose to emphasize in those early issues was uh, an eerie kind of a mystery that had Weird Menace trappings. Now, Weird Menace as yet did not exist, although these weird elements were beginning to turn up in the detective magazines of other publishers, most notably A.A. Wynn's Detective Dragnet, which became 10 Detective Aces. So they were starting to have these uh, very bizarre murder methods and, and criminals uh, uh, with hidden identities, and they were, they were using horror trappings uh, to, to cloak what would otherwise be a fairly routine mystery story. Of the novels that were written for Dime Mystery Book that were originals, the, the standout, in my opinion, is William Corcoran's The Purple Eye, which, uh, not uncoincidentally, I reprinted a few years ago under my Murania Press imprint. The reason The Purple Eye is so good, besides being a, a, a good story in its own right, I believe it was actually an informal template for the popular publication's hero pulps, especially the spider, whom it beat into print by about two months, and even elements of Operator 5 later on. Now, why do I say this? The hero was that familiar archetype to detective pulp lovers, the millionaire sportsman and world traveler who comes back to his native New York City to fight crime, and specifically a mysterious villain called the Purple Eye, who was actually the emissary of a cult called the Brotherhood of the Baktun. And the Brotherhood is using methods of terrorization and destruction to terrorize the entire New York City. Now, unlike the Spider novels, which use the same kind of template, they didn't kill thousands of people in the Purple Eye, but there was a lot of violence. And in a, in a, in a gimmick that was picked up by Operator 5, um, the uh, leading lady of the story, I won't really call her a heroine because she, she wasn't strictly speaking a heroine, has at her command the loyalty of a, a number of taxi drivers who comb New York and who form a network of spies uh, operating on her behalf against the Brotherhood of the Baktun. This was very similar to the Hidden Hundred, which were Operator 5's uh, uh, undercover agents. So in this way, you have several of the really important elements of the, uh, of the hero pulp in this one story. And while the hero does not adopt any, any disguises or anything, he is, you know, you could just as easily call him Richard Wentworth. He, he's the same kind of guy. Uh, I have no reason to believe that the Purple Eye was any better or that that issue sold any better than the other issues of Dime Mystery Book. But in any case, the format that we're talking about, the 60,000-word novel, the Edgar Wallace reprint story, the Leslie T. White true crime story, and whatever other short stories followed it, that only lasted about nine or ten issues. And at some point, for reasons that we don't know, Steger decided to revamp the title. So he dropped the word book from the magazine. So instead of Dime Mystery Book, it became Dime Mystery Magazine. And I believe it's the October 1933 issue that has the aforementioned Dance of the Skeletons by one Norville W. Page, who was not yet writing for the Spider. It would still be a month or two before his first Spider novel hit the stands. But Dance of the Skeletons was something 
that was new. It was a full-throated weird menace story in that um, it presented a mysterious problem. It presented a criminal who murdered people by unknown methods. And in this case, the gimmick was that the victims were found stripped to the bone. They were murdered and found stripped to the bone, which of course obscured the means of death, what murder weapons were used, et cetera, et cetera. They just turned up as skeletons. Well, since it's a fairly uncommon story, and unless you want to spend $300 to find a copy of that issue, you're probably not going to read it. So I'm going to spoil it by saying that what they did was they dipped the bodies in uh, pools of piranha fish, who then stripped the corpses clean in a matter of seconds. Now, why is this important? Because this, for the first time, was the hallmark of Weird Menace. It was the presentation of a problem which appeared to be supernatural in origin and yet was explained away logically, however improbably, at, at the end of the story to have a perfectly rational uh, resolution. Now, Steger in later years claimed that the idea for Weird Menace, which was later became very heavy on uh, torture and mistreatment of women and uh, uh, you know, very brutal kind of gothic uh, things that, that he was inspired by a visit to the Grand Guignol Theater in Paris where they did this kind of thing every night for in front of live audiences and they faked the tortures and gruesome treatment of, uh, of women who screamed and shouted and met all kinds of uh, fates worse, worse than death uh, in front of a live a paying audience. I'm not sure how how convincingly he conveyed this idea to all his writers, because some of them definitely did it better than others. It turned out that there were some writers who were better at it uh, than others. Some, some of the early authors included John H. Knox, Hugh B. Cave, who of course had already written all kinds of uh, uh, pulp stories, adventure stories, detective stories, uh, but was particularly good at these early weird menace stories, and a bunch of other authors. They occasionally varied the formula. There's a 1935 um, uh, issue of, of Dime Mystery that has a classic Cornell Woolrich short story called Dark Melody of Madness, which takes place in New Orleans and involves uh, uh, some musicians who get hooked up with evil forces. Has a classic last line, which I won't give you because that story is in print in several anthologies. But that w definitely had supernatural overtones. That did not have something that was explained away logically at the end. And as a matter of fact, with the last line of the story, it's, it's really rather spine chilling. And you can get a little shudder even today, 90 years after it was written, that that story is capable of giving you a little uh, frisson, I guess you, you might say. So they continued this, and gradually, as the mid-30s progressed into the late 30s, the emphasis became more on the physical tortures, and that is a preoccupation that was carried over by the cover artists. So where you had a lot of gothic scenes illustrating some of the earlier issues, as you get into the 1936-37 period, there's a greater concentration on half-dressed women. I mean, as, as with each passing month, it seems, they're a little more undressed. And, you know, finally they're doing thinly-veiled nudes and they're, they're being tortured in various horrible ways or menaced by drooling fiends, not unlike most pulp collectors, and uh, <laughs> this became the standard formula. Now, I should mention that 
This formula proves so successful to depression audiences who, by virtue of the fact of the real-life horrors they were living through in the early and mid-30s when they started Weird Menace, demanded their escapist entertainment be more and more extreme. So this is what fed into this, uh, uh, the popularity of these kinds of stories. They really appealed to people precisely because of their gruesomeness or their tastelessness. Or they really pushed the boundaries for newsstand publications. Uh, not, not so much as the spices, but then again, the spices were often sold in venues like cigar stores and they were often sold under the counter, whereas Dime Mystery was something that, that still appeared on the, on the newsstands. But you'll find, in my opinion, the, the best, the peak period of the, of the weird menace phase of Dime Mystery was around 1936 to 1938. So like I said, you have the cover artists are Tom Lovell, Walter Baumhofer, John Newton Howitt. A little later on, you have people like Ralph Berger, um, and then the inside illustrations mostly were done by Amos Sewell. Late in the 30s, he was kind of supplanted by Monroe Eisenberg and some of the other artists. Um, and by the way, all of their illustrations were of a piece, which means that the art director, whoever it was, and I forget his name at that time, um, was who? Portugal? That's right, Alex, Alex Portugal, right. Obviously, he, he had very tight control over, over the illustrator, saying, we want this, and you can show this much, but no more, and you know we want everything to be um, very tightly staged and scripted so that uh, to, to, in keeping with the, with the plot formula that the writers were using. After, the success of Dime Mysteries, Weird Menace stories prompted popular publications to start other all Weird Menace publications. The first was Terror Tales, which began in 1934. The second was Horror Stories, which began in early 1935. Dime Mystery, as those two magazines, sister publications, became more popular, Dime Mystery kind of scaled back on the, on the gothicism and, and the, uh, uh, all the torture stuff, and they entered a phase where the mystery stories would still be eerie. There would still be some horror trappings. There would still be some things that seemed to defy rational explanation. But the emphasis was on the detectives themselves rather than the gruesome crimes or the insane villains. And you entered a phase that Robert Kenneth Jones in his book called The Shutter Pulps, which is really the, the key work, I think Aaron would agree with me, on, on this particular uh, subgenre, he called it the, the defective detective. So interest in these stories with these protagonists was sustained by the fact that they all had problems of their own that made them uniquely vulnerable. So it wasn't just about the shrieking women who were being kidnapped and tortured and murdered and whatever. It was also about the detectives trying to solve these crimes. One of them was a hemophiliac whose nickname was the Bleeder, duh. And uh, so the constant fear there was that he was going to get into a fight with one of the villains and he was going to get cut or shot and bleed to death. Uh, there was a midget detective whose name I forget. He stood about four feet tall. So there were a number of detectives. Now, this, had, this, this movement towards the so-called defective detective had been presaged in another popular mystery magazine called Strange Detective <coughs> Mysteries, which started in 1937. The defective... Detective phase lasted 
probably a year or two. Uh, it starts somewhere around 1938, goes through 1949, and by 1940, they're already phasing it out. Now, some of those characters do reappear in other magazines, specifically Strange Detective Mysteries, which lasted into the war, but uh, the magazine started to evolve in, in yet other directions as the 40s progressed. And at this point, I'll turn it over to Garen, and he'll pick it up from there. That's wonderful, Ed. Um, wow, it's been uh, an honor to be here following David Saunders and Ed Hulse. And Ed's exactly right. Right where he, he left off is, is sort of something that I may know a little bit about. Robert Kenneth Jones, of course, published the book in 1975. That was a while ago. Uh, holy cow, I was 16 and I'm 63 now, so that was a while ago. Um, thankfully to people like Ed, that seminal archetypal book has been taken further because it was not complete. And Ed has done some beautiful work in Word Menace, as has some other people. Um, and it's, it's funny, I'm very blessed to be here with Ed our minds kind of, and I'm complimenting myself, they kind of mesh together because exactly 1938 is the year of the first effective detectives. Now the story goes, and you've probably heard this, and we wrote about this years ago, uh, Gary Hoppenstein and I did a couple of reprint volumes for the popular press back in the 80s of defective detectives, and I understand Matt Mooring's going to do a comprehensive thing maybe with Gary or whatever. The story goes that the PTA group in New York City we're getting kind of riled about their adolescent kids reading about this weird menace stuff, the inappropriate uh, behavior of, of uh, villains on women and all other kinds of people. Um, so whether or not that's a true story or whatever, the story continues that the publishers decided they would try to mute the emphasis on the weird menace and, as Ed suggested, turn to the detective. And so in a story, you need a, a balance of conventions, the familiar. And Ed's right, the Purple Eye story is great. You've got to get his book. He's got two printings of it, two covers, get one of each. Anyway, um, so the convention is there, but the invention shifts a little bit from, well, that didn't last very long. They could never get rid of their weird menace. In my opinion, they were still writing it. And that's for the defective, and, and as Ed said, there was Nat Perry, the hemophiliac detective, there, were, there was a crab detective who, who scuttled along on the sidewalk, there, were, there was uh, dwarfs, and a lot of today what would be politically incorrect stuff. But we appreciate it in the context in which it appeared. Well, this is all very interesting and it's going on, and we're getting into the early 40s as Ed was saying. But let's jump ahead to about 1986, the fall of 86. I just finished school at Bowling Green with my third and final degree. And uh, I got my first professorship over in southern Minnesota. Well, that meant, and this man and his wife have been mentioned all day today, so I think they may be looking down upon us. That meant I was near Jack, Dev Jack and Helen Devaney. Jack was a, a, a World War I flying ace. And he was one of the first pilots for Northwest Airlines, which had begun in the Twin Cities. So, at the time, without going into a lot of personal details, I was uh, my first of my two marriages. My second one has now gone 33 years, but my first one went about a year and a half. And I was having rough times. So every Friday, I would go up to Jack and Helen's. 
and we talk pulps. And Jack, as people have talked about in that earlier remembrances of Pulp Town and Pulp Fest, was incredibly benevolent. So one day he says, he, he give me shadows, stacks of shadows. All the covers all ripped. Yeah, just take it, you know. And I walk out of there with stacks of stuff. Or he'd sell me boxes of things for uh, $20 would be fine for that box of shadows, you know. And he, this literally was the truth. And one day he said, Garen, I've got some stuff. I, 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 I got to get rid of it. We've got so much of it. I got 1940s Dime Mysteries and 1940s Ten Detective Aces, which Ed just referenced. And the Ten Detective Aces had some of that, that A.A. Wynn stuff, had some of that weird menace thing going in there. And it showcased authors like Norval Page, Lester Dent, Emil Pepperman, Paul Chadwick, all who would go on to be pretty famous in the, in the hero pulps. Well, I love Jack and Helen. In fact, I don't know how many years ago, it was 10 or 12 years ago, I wrote an essay on them for the pulpster. And my, my memory of them, I just, man, I miss them. And they were, their names were evoked a couple hours ago twice. And I thought, mm hmm, Jack is paying attention today. I love the guy. He was, he was my friend. I'd sit in his, his office outside of Minneapolis in a, in a suburb called Edina. And he had one of these big console radios with the color bubbles that would go around, you know, and he'd be playing the 30s and 40s big band music, and we'd be looking at the Black Hood, you know, or whatever was going on in the Weird Menace. Dime Mystery, as Ed said, Terror Tales and Horror Stories being probably three of the big ones, although Ed's done some stuff with Red Circle Pulps. It's a whole other story, and equally wonderful and horrifying at the same time. Okay, so Dime Novels, uh, Dime Mystery in the 40s changes a little bit. Ed, Ed, Ed's good. He's very, very good. And like I said, I'm honored to be here. And there are a number of authors that emerge. Uh, before we get to the authors, there was a lady from Pittsburgh, and I was hoping she'd be here this year. She passed just a couple weeks ago. Gloria Stoll Karn. Oh, yeah. What a sweetheart of a lady. And I adored her. My daughters, who are about 25 miles out of town right now, they just both graduated college. They're 23, 21. I won't brag about them. I'm so proud of them. One's in medical school, one's an environmental engineer trying to clean up Michigan and the Flint problem. Um, Gloria loved those girls when they were little babies. And she said, can I paint them? She said, I want to paint them one day. And so I got packets of stuff that Gloria sent. But beyond that, somebody said it earlier today, the pulps are about the third thing I like coming to this convention. And number one and number two are different kinds of people. It's the people that I, I love the stories. Anyway, Gloria did some of the paintings for the 40s dime, dime mystery covers, and they were quite good. She could draw a lady's leg like nobody's business, paint them, and she'd have these beautiful blondes with the, the soft, fluffy hair. She had them textured. I was like, wow, that's really something, you know. Later in her life, Gloria went on to uh, religious paintings, and she did well there too. But anyway, in the 40s, she was one of the big cover artists. And like I said, I kind of hope she, but she was 98 when she passed a couple weeks ago. I was kind of hoping one more crack to see Gloria. You know, she was here a couple years ago and didn't live too far from here. Well, the 40s Dime Mysteries, without me carrying on too much, let me tell you some of the authors who were in there, okay? And I remember Jack Devaney had given me a stack of 40s Dime Mysteries and 40s Ten Detective Aces, and I still have every one of them, okay? Um, there was Dave Keene. There was William Campbell Galt, Russell Gray, who'd been around uh, previously in the 30s in the Weird Menace stuff. He could tell a wild story. As did Wyatt Blassingame, um, Talmadge Powell. And there were 
Three or four of my all-time favorite pulp authors, in no particular order, there was Frederick Brown, Frederick C. Davis, Robert Block, and there's some new Robert Blocks coming out from a couple of different publishers right now, and one I'm, gonna, one I'm contributing to was Centipede Press. Before he died, Bob left me, he died in 94, and he left me an introduction for a book I haven't published yet, so we're gonna get that book out. Um, but these were really nice transitional authors. Well, one of those, a couple of years ago in 220, we celebrated the 100th birthday of Ray Bradbury. Now, I was blessed and, and told some romantic and very true stories of, of uh, my love affair with Ray. I, I loved Ray. And as great as his stories were, I liked him as a person. And he was a neat man, and we toured a couple times. We did community reads projects for Fahrenheit 451. And I would set out all my rare, you know, Bradbury stuff, my different first editions of Fahrenheit 451, the Galaxy magazine with the firemen. Oh, anyway. Ray and I had lots and lots in common, but there have been two books of Ray's work in the Dime Mystery, New Detective, Popular uh, Publications realm. One was a paperback in 1984 called A Memory of Murder. If you see it around today, it's anywhere from $20 to $30. Get a copy, you want it. Okay, it's got kind of a goofy, weird menace cover. There's a girl with a skeleton behind her, and it's kind of neat. It's not complete. Uh, Ray has an error in the introduction to that book. He said that he had once written for Black Mask. He never did write for Black Mask. And then more recently, a couple of years ago with the 100th anniversary, there was Killer Come Back to Me, which was named for the first story in 1945 that Ray had done for Dime Mystery. And a lot of this stuff is illustrated by Gloria Stoll Karn. These beautiful covers, the monsters, the pretty girls, and really, really, really neat stuff. I love Charles Arde from Hard Case Crime. I like the old Dell Memory of Murder. They, they haven't done it right yet. We need a facsimile reprint of the popular publications, Dime Novel, uh, or the Dime, Dime Mystery Stories and New Detective Stories by Ray Bradbury. And they need to be done facsimile. Somebody was talking earlier today about preserving stuff. Don Hutchinson mentioned the value of replicas. Yes, those are very important and they, they are indeed our future. I'm really not a big fan of, of revisionism. And I could point out some current stuff going on right now that just curls my hair when they try to update num uh, names and political correctness. No, you look at it in the context in which it appeared, you study it, you learn from it, you don't revise it and try to make it something it wasn't. Anyway, I love facsimile, I always have. I've got all the stories and I know the family. Uh, three of Ray's four uh, sisters are, or daughters are still alive. One just died recently. And um, his, the son of his original agent, Don Cogden, is on board. I want those done in a facsimile edition. And by God, I'm going to hope to see him. Ray appeared in a couple of, a whole range of the different Dime Mystery New Detective stories. And sometimes he appeared under pseudonym. And there are some rare issues where he's got two stories in one, one volume. And it's got a glorious doll, Karnk. Holy cow, does it get much better than this? No, not really, okay? Um, so he would use, of course, a, a pseudonym along with his regular name, like the July 1945 issue. And um, it was really good stuff. Robert Block had good stuff. Uh, Fred Davis was a very prolific author, was still continuing on. And all of these guys, Frederick Brown, would transition into the paperbacks, and that's a whole other history, right, about why paperbacks came about in 1930, 1937, 38. 
paper shortages, a desire to send paperbacks overseas to soldiers. And there's a whole wonderful history in there that goes on. Okay. Um, what else do I need to tell you? Besides the fact that Jack and Helen were wonderful and I loved them so much. Um, Garen, why don't you get into the, the uh, what, what was your sense of, of how those 40 stories were different from the yeah. 30? What, what were the qualities that they had? They, they were a little bit more mystery. They were private detective kinds of things. In fact, Ray Bradbury had, it was a short-lived series. It was only two stories, but it was based on the same detective character named the Dowser. And um, it was a little bit weird menace, a little bit detective fiction, but mostly these things were um, kind of just standard but still very good mystery stories. The formula was still holding up. They still had enough convention. They had the newspaper reporter, the hero you were talking about before, and the stories chugged along pretty good. And if you got a guy like, like Davis or Block or whatever, they were very economical with their words, and so they could elicit all kinds of images, and it, it carried the stories and served as sort of a branch into some early paperback detective fiction and, and all that kind of thing. Um, oh, it's, it's, the 40s is, 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 as Ed has suggested, oftentimes if somebody mentions Robert Heinlein to me and the science fiction story, I think of Picasso because he went through so many different periods, you know, the Rose period, the this period, the Cubism, and he went through just a whole range of things. Dime Mystery is kind of like that. And that's where I think Mike came up with the title for our presentation. It goes through some different periods, and I think some of the material in the 40s is, is greatly underappreciated. I, th I think there's some really nice, really wonderful authors, and I'm talking too much, but I love this stuff. No, well, in the case of Block, do you detect the kind of that, that patented Robert Block brand of mordant humor that's in some of his other stuff? Was that in his Absolutely, and, you know, Bob used to write his... Uh, uh, wonderful man also, uh, write his stories backwards, of course, from the twist ending, because he was known for his twist ending, and he'd write them backwards. And a lot of that is in place. A lot of things that precede and predict some of his 50s and 60s psychological terror things, not only psycho, but other things. One of my all-time favorite Robert Block stories is the Weird Tales novella, The Cheaters, about the glasses that go from one... Actually, Boris Karloff made a Twilight Zone episode of a thriller of that. It's a very good episode. It's an hour-long episode. And uh, he did a thing called the scarf, which had the motif of the scarf that kept strangling. I can get off on these topics. It's terrible. I love this stuff. But the 40s is really a... It's very solid, and there's a lot of good material there. Do you detect in the 40s stories the, the um, what we'd call noir, the uh, kind of cynical, you know, uh, very bitter... Um, yes, there, there is some yeah. of that, and... Maybe in a lot of detective fiction at that point, it's, it's carrying through there, and there's a, there's a, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's strange, definitely, in some of the other popular mm -hmm. detective pulps. Yeah. Almost, uh, maybe I'm stretching it too much by saying this, but a, a noir kind of quality and, and that kind of thing in there. Mm -hmm. But they're very readable, and the thing about the Bradbury stories is those are very, very good stories. They actually, there's one story, and I won't wreck it too badly, there's a man and his girlfriend who goes out on the beach, and she wants to kill him. The thing is, he's a hemophiliac. we got that theme again. So she takes him out on the beach, sets him up on the beach, numbs his back with, I'm wrecking the story, with the suntan lotion, and then he cuts, she cuts him to pieces with a seashell, and he bleeds to death out on the, on the seashore. Um, that's kind of macabre, but there are some really neat 
a lot, uh, Bradbury really was proud of his, his detective fiction. Some of it was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you can see, there's a lot in, in the different phases of dime mystery. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot to sink your teeth into, whether you're a fan of that very early dime mystery book phase or a fan of the weird menace phase or the de defective detective or the 40 stories and the, the wry touches of humor that, that pop up in these. So, and the good news about those 40s issues especially, now the 30s issues are going to cost you a lot of money, mm -hmm. especially if you want them in nice shape. But the 40s issues are much more common and far less expensive mm -hmm. than the 30s weird menace issues. So um, there's lots of them in the dealer's room if you want to take a chance. And Garen talks about a memory of murder. There's probably a half a dozen copies in the room, you know, yeah, with you, various you, dealers you who sell paperbacks. You've got to have that paperback. Yeah. I've only got 20 of them. That's really tops. So to keep on schedule, we're going to end it here and throw it open to questions for a few minutes. So does anybody have any questions about Dime Mystery? Yes, sir. So uh, Howard did a lot of covers yeah. that are fantastic. I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but I'd like to ask, um, I've heard that he destroyed all of them. None of them exist anymore. Is the original art really all gone? I, do you want to do that? Or you want I, I, I don't know. I could tell you a Margaret Brundage story about how she repainted over stuff and some of it was glass and all this and that. But. Well, I, I can tell you that how it was deeply afraid of his, uh, afraid, deeply ashamed of a lot of that stuff, especially the, the stuff depicting violence towards women. He did destroy it. I, I'm not going to say that he destroyed it all. It's been, other people have said that. But the fact, there are a couple of, of how it, weird menace paintings that do survive. And our, our late friend Bob Lesser had one of them. And I believe it was, it was either a Dime Mystery or a Terror Tales cover from 34 or 35. So I'm, I'm not going to swear that they're all destroyed, but it is true that he was ashamed of it and he did destroy certainly the lion's share of it. The, the author, Paul Ernst, uh, was ashamed of his, his, his horror or mystery writing too. And I've also heard the story that a number of the artists were so poor that they painted over their old hardboards and used the same hardboard for the next illustration. So they uh, reused and painted over a lot of their old stuff. David, does that sound familiar? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they only used canvas at that time. They were okay. no illustration board. Okay. And, and I, no painting's been found uh, that has more than one cover underneath it. Mm. Ever seen. When they like x ray or something. Sure. Theoretically, it makes sense. And poor artists do do that. Sure. So that's true. Yeah. I've never seen one. Well, I'm, I'm somewhat suspicious, too, of the PTA story, that they were responsible for getting the weird menace changed to detective, defective detectives, too. I've always kind of raised my eye on that one a little bit. Although it's an interesting story. Parent-teachers association? Yes, in New York City. They didn't want their kids reading the weird menace stuff. Yeah. Well, it is a documented fact that there were a lot of groups. It was not just the PTA. Mm -hmm. There were church groups that objected, and most importantly, New York's mayor at the time, Fiorello LaGuardia, who, you know, had various, mostly for publicity purposes, but, you know, we're going to stamp out this smut in our magazines, our kids are reading, blah, 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 blah. If they only knew how we grew up to how perverted we are. Uh, Steve, you had a question? Yeah, no, I, I went to uh, look at the one Bob Howard painting at the museum that Bob and Lester donated to, it's still there. It's a horror story cover. Yeah. It is horror stories. Doug? Yeah, and following up on what you were saying about the um, censorship groups, um, one of those groups in the late 30s, early 40s that got very powerful was the National Organization for Peace and Literature. 
and uh, they published for a period of about five years reports of their efforts to uh, stamp out uh, uh, what they think is objectionable material and false and other material. And in one of those volumes, there's a letter they wrote to Popular in June of 1940 <coughs> objecting to five titles of one of them, Die Mystery. And they print the uh, letters back and not popular on that. And Popular says, you know, we're going to change terror and horrors uh, uh, slant right away. And with respect to Die Mystery, we have an issue with the printer which we ordered destroyed. Uh, and uh, no copies of it will be distributed, you know, we're going to start a new issue. So... Isn't that interesting? And is that around the time they phased in the defective detectives? Exactly. Well, it's June of 1940. So I'm okay. always wondering whether somebody at the printer took one of those issues and destroyed. And there's a uh, variant issue, uh, which is the old regime still... Uh, well, is Caneo Press still around? No, they're not. Too bad we can't get in their files. Sheila? Well, yeah, Dime Mystery did skip an issue around, uh, I think, January through April, then June on. So there's no May issue at all. Uh, in 1940? Yes. OK. See, this is the great thing about being among a crowd like this that has as much knowledge collectively. Thank you for that. I didn't know that myself. Uh, one more? And you, you've said before that there were like Period certain editors and stuff. Yeah, did everybody hear that question? David was asking about the number. A lot of the editors were not credited on, on these magazines. But Rogers Terrell, when the Weird Menace phase started in 1933, he was the editorial director. Now, he edited a bunch of the magazines themselves, but there were a lot of sub-editors. And I can tell you some of them were strictly editors. Some of them also did some writing. William Corcoran, who wrote The Purple Eye, he did some editing. A guy named Moran Tadouri did some editing on the Weird Menace books. Another guy named Loring Downst, D-O-W-N-S-T, he also did some editing. Later on, uh, I think Alden Norton edited the, if he had anything to do with Dime was probably much later on in the 40s. He certainly wasn't on it during the 30s. But it, it seems that from what I've been able to find, maybe Garen's research indicates differently, it seems that a number of these editors bounced from book to book, especially during the 30s, as needed, and that some lasted a little longer at, at some books. I mean, if you look at Bob Sampson's book on the spider, he lists no less than seven or eight editors between 1933 and 1943 on the spider, some lasting longer than others. No, but it's clear that there was a uniform strategy, that there was a, a you know, and whether that was, it came from Terrell, I, I think it probably did rather than somebody like Ken White, who's, you know, did Dime Detective uh, from like 1935 on, and then when the popular What Black Mask, Ken White did Black Mask, he didn't seem to have much truck with the weird menace or the e really eerie kind of mysteries. Although he did put Donovan's brain in Black Mask, so uh, you know it's hard to hard to know exactly. But I think that that Terrell working with Harry Steger, um, you know Steger, as as you know, took credit for a lot of stuff. Some of which we know he did, and some of which we have suspicions that he didn't do. 
um, that he took credit for. So it's hard to know exactly, you know, did he go into Terrell's office and say, hey, I was at the Grand Guignol Theater in Paris, and I just love seeing these women get tortured on stage, so we got to put this in one of our magazines. I, I can't say for certain that, that he did that, but that's his story, and we're stuck with it. So, Mike, we have time for any more, or are we done? Uh, two minutes. Two minutes, one more question. Sheila. Well, Garen had a, a teaser there about Ray Bradbury writing under a pseudonym. What was that pseudonym? Well, he wrote under several. There were sub, uh, seven or eight or nine, but the one I'm referencing is D.R. Bennett, B-A-N-A-T. And so there was a story in one issue uh, with Ray Bradbury and D.R. Bennett on it. There was also an issue that featured Bradbury on the cover, and there's no Bradbury story in the issue. Hmm. So for God's sake, if you see that issue in the dealer's room, look at the table of contents and make sure Bradbury... He appeared in the next month, yeah. but they got ahead of themselves. But oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I want to thank you all for putting up with us, and I want to thank you for uh, not booing the fact that we didn't have any cover reproductions. It's always a pleasure to be with my old friend Garen doing one of these things. And uh, uh, stay tuned, and I'll be back tomorrow with Will Murray uh, on Dime Western, uh, the other popular hit that started in 1932. Uh, of course, without pictures. Without pictures, yeah. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.